and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Papaida. Uh, today we're here with Laura Rykovic. Laura is, the curate, is a curator, museum director, and author of the recent book, Culture Strike, Art and Museums in an Age of Protest. Um, William, I think you were going to uh, do the, the full introduction. Um, tell us about Laura um, before Laura um, says Laura things. Well, uh, she's the former director of the Queen's Museum. Um, and, you know, Laura spent some time in the introduction of her book talking about her, her resignation from the museum and the circumstances surrounding that that I think are worth um, discussing, particularly around this idea central to the book that museums are some sort of site of neutrality, which she effectively uh, dismantles <laughs> over the course of the book. Um, and she was most recently the interim director of the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art. And uh, as you talk about in the book, um, Laura, Laura, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the project you're currently working on. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, when I, I first started working on the book, um, you know, right after I left the Queens Museum, which was in a very, I mean, it seems like such a long time ago, it was only three years ago, <laughs> but, um, but it seems, um, a long time ago, in part because of the political and social and economic realities of what's happened since then. And, um, and I think in a way that all began, you know, for me in the um, lead up to the 2016 presidential election, which, um, which brought Donald Trump to the White House and, um, and changed a lot for very many people. Um, and that was, in fact, one of the reasons that I, um, I, I felt I had to resign from my work at the Queens Museum, although I didn't feel like my work was complete there. Um, I felt like there was a lot more that I wanted to do and to contribute. But um, given, um, given the state of, um, of the policies that were coming down from the highest level of US government and the impact those were having on the communities surrounding the museum with whom we'd partnered for very many years, I really felt like it was a time for us to be taking a position more clearly, um, particularly around the support of immigrant rights. Um, and there were a few board members, a very small handful, um, not at all the majority, but enough to make a difference um, because of the way that they felt about this. And it's not that they were necessarily Trump supporters, they were more um, um, they weren't, in fact. They were more afraid of the, the attention that it might bring to them. And my feeling was that the precarity of the people with whom we'd collaborated for those very many years, long before my time there, um, was more um, important to consider than that of um, than that of the board members. Um, and um, that was the, a point of friction. And so in any case, um, you know, as I began sort of thinking through this book, um, I started um, really understanding the way that this myth of the neutral cultural space, um, the power of that mythology, uh, because it is, it's so, it's so obvious. When I first started talking about the myth of neutrality, people were like, what, people actually think a museum can be neutral? And I was like, well, 
yes and no. <laughs> you know, I think in a very logical world, people say, think to themselves, well, obviously there, that can't be. But in, in, in a sense, you know, it's, it's such a, it's so embedded that it's invisible. And so I felt like what I really needed to do in this book was lay out all the ways in which it appears. And to do that, I had to kind of go back through the history of the evolution of museums in the United States and kind of unpack that. And so the project I'm working on right now, which relates so intrinsically to the, to the book is um, called the Art and Society Census. And it's a collaboration between me and BPL Presents at the Brooklyn Public Library and Hyperallergic. And um, as I was working on the book, it became very clear to me that one of the major rebalancing issues that needs to happen is around how, how the general public relates to cultural space, um, particularly um, if we're ever gonna break the kind of philanthropic spell or hold that, um, that philanthropy and um, high, you know, high-level donors have the influence that high-level donors have on the museum space, um, and that was particularly important um, to the to the kind of conceptualizing of this art and society census project because we're talking about 2019 when we first started thinking about this um, and the ways in which um, people perceive museums as and cultural and many cultural spaces as elite spaces and not for them. And so how would you convince a population to devote more, um, more tax uh, funds to cultural space if they didn't have a horse in that race? Um, and so to me, what needed to happen was to have a national conversation about the meaning of culture um, in order to build the kind of public will to support culture in a more um, specific sense, because obviously the NEA ain't gonna cut it. Um, so what would we need to do that? We would need to actually have a conversation about it. Um, and so I, I was trying to figure out, and you know, what structures, what infrastructures we could use to understand better how folks feel about cultural space. And I started having this conversation with Hrug and Beacon and, um, and then Jakob Orsos, who's the head of, of BPL Presents and Cora Fisher, a uh, wonderful curator at BPL. And, um, and we kind of, we came up with this idea of in the same year in 2020, the same year as the census to do an art and society census. And so the way that this project works is that we, we created a, um, a survey um, that launched in December of 2020 um, and collected those results um, as we went. Uh, we understood very early on, there were certain themes that were super important to people who were thinking about this subject. Um, and of course we were doing all this thinking in the midst of the pandemic. So things kept shifting and it seems at some point completely irrelevant to do this project, but then it came into very sharp focus that it was absolutely what needed to get done. And so we convened a group of facilitators to lead public working groups that anyone could attend and we publicized it broadly. And those groups met 
for uh, five sessions, an hour and a half to two hours each, really to delve into very particular topics from money to connecting with the local to um, how one encounters cultural space. And then out of those working groups came a document called the Proclamation of Life and Art. And we held a public convening a few weeks ago called the Congress on Life and Art where that document was kind of presented as a working document. And um, it's still an ongoing process, but the desire is to create a kind of working and changing document that can eventually be delivered um, to the city council of New York City and the mayor, the new mayor, um, all of whom are coming on board this fall. So iterating that, um, that document over time um, to be able to bring some fresh ideas about what, public, what New York City publics think about culture. So what kind of questions were you asking? Was it, and it was, um, for the survey. So, so the survey was national, but then this other, the other part is. The survey was really geared towards New York City because we recognized that, you know, conducting a national survey was probably beyond the scope of me and the Brooklyn Public Library. We probably would need a larger infrastructure to do that. But we figured, hey, let's start with Brooklyn. You know? And as it turned out, what was really interesting is that a lot of people heard about it uh, outside of Brooklyn um, and participated. So we actually did get answers from, from folks who were coming from across the United States. And in fact, a lot of people who participated in the actual working groups were not just New Yorkers, you know, there are folks from Ohio and Maine and, um, and other parts of the Midwest. Um, we had a Californian or two in there. Um, so it was really interesting who really showed up for it. Um, and, um, and, and the range of people who, who came into those conversations was like really remarkable, not just, you know, our aim was really to engage people beyond art world insiders because we we already know what all of us think. <laughs> what kind of what kind of questions were you asking? I'm sorry to ask so many questions. No, no, no. We were trying to get a sense of what uh, what exactly this is. We wanted to ask really basic questions like, you know, what is culture to you? Where do you experience it? With whom? How, you know, to, to really understand how folks encounter what they consider to be culture. Because I think, you know, one of the big um, issues that uh, that I've encountered and, and that I think, um, I hope I've made clear in the book is that Cultural space in the United States began as an educational enterprise to educate a public. And so that desire to constantly feed information to the public has driven a very specific type of broadcasting model of information uh, generation uh, or content production, however you want to frame it. Um, and what I think that it misses sometimes is the knowledges that publics bring into that cultural space and that there is actually a profound level of, of, um, of stuff that one could learn as an institution, as people who work in institutions from the folks who come in, right? And that we're not, as cultural producers, we're not just always in charge of giving information out, but maybe we need to be 
hearing what comes in as well. And so kind of advocating for this exchange model of communication. And of course, there are many brilliant educators who have been pushing for this kind of model throughout museums and cultural spaces across the United States for, for a very long time. But that kind of pedagogical approach has not necessarily permeated into the other ways that, that cultural spaces communicate with their audiences and publics. And so I think in a sense, that's a piece of what I'm really interested in is sort of flipping around the way that cultural institutions imagine what they can provide for publics. And so one of the things that we were really interested in and kind of understanding was if that premise, if that idea was actually what people want, you know, <laughs> because I think there's like kind of a divide between what cultural spaces and institutions think people want and what they actually do want, right? Well, yeah, and I mean, that starts with one of the things you discuss in the book is that, you know, these museums are founded on the collections of the interests of, say, you could just shorthand it and say the ruling class, you know, which tended to be white men, and whatever their interests were, were sort of presented as collections that then became objects of study that people can get lost in inside the museum, forgetting that there is an audience coming in, right? But it is, you know, a lot of what is presented as culture is coming through a very, very narrow filter of the interests of the board members, um, you know, who are both providing the funding for the museums and the, the, the governance <laughs> of, of, of the museums as well. Um, and your book definitely gets into this. And it's something that um, I found really interesting and something I was very interested in as well is, is what do the, when we think about the audience for museums, I mean, there, it starts with this sort of universal idea that there's a, a, a general public of some kind that is a catch-all for everyone, right? But we know it's, um, there are questions of access um, related to race, class, gender, geography. I mean, you know, um, I was, and we can get into this a little bit later, but I was definitely involved in the nine weeks of action at the Whitney Museum. And one of the things that guided our work um, and eventual publication was the idea that, you know, the audience that was coming into the museum, there were people that would ask questions about what the Candor's protests were about, which you explore and cover in the book. Um, and there were other people that were sort of hostile to the protests. Um, but the people who were curious and wanted to know what was going on, there was a need to kind of present them some information. But a lot of these folks were tourists, you know, um, not connected to communities in New York, they were coming in. And that has always seemed to be central to the kind of funding mechanisms for the museums that, um, you know, if let's just say if the Whitney Museum, if the Guggenheim, if the Met are sort of geared for an international tourist audience, it really <laughs> creates, uh, it makes the work you're doing with the art and society census taking place in Brooklyn really important, you know, if these museums are actually sort of serving communities. Um, and that, that question of audience and who museums are for, um, I think your book definitely gets into and, um, was something that drove our our inquiry again into like <laughs> how much do people really understand about you know museums and how they function and and what the problems are that sort of seem to continually arise since your book is called you know the age of protests right <laughs> yeah I mean it, it's funny because I I think what you're getting at there William is important on a number of levels so who we imagine to be the audience for museums 
as museum workers, but also who publics imagine to be the audience for museums. And one of you know the arguments in the book um, around how around the importance of our own imaginations in what culture can and should provide, um, cultural institutions can and should provide, um, is about that imagination and and you know and in a sense um, what I'm calling for is a reevaluation of how we define publics because in a sense right um, everyone who pays taxes um, is the public for these institutions because we've already granted the tax deduction to wealthy individuals who want to make contributions. And that's a good thing, right? It's like, great, that happened, right? But we still, but, but, but it's not that we can reclaim that power yeah. <laughs> and make other demands of what needs to happen in order to maintain that. You know, I think oftentimes when you get into the financial discussion around, um, around the problematics of the way that things are currently funded in the US, there's a lot of fear around, you know, well, what do we do without that? And this is in part what the Art and Society census in a much bigger, you know, if, if it could be implemented in a much bigger way is to kind of address the fact that we need to create a much broader conversation around what culture is being produced out of these institutions because that is where we can really shift the national conversation potentially around how to fund culture. Uh, because even if like there was the tiniest little percentage quarter of a percentage point, like a, a, a tiny percentage of a percentage of like a big transportation bill, for example, that supports the infrastructure of the United States. If there could be a tiny piece of that that was allocated to funding the heat, light, and power at cultural institutions across the United States, that would suddenly shift everything. Like, I, I can't even what we're talking, the, the amount of money that we're talking about is so tiny and take it out of these kind of big target zones of, uh, you know, the NEA or like specifically arts related things and put it into what it really is, which is infrastructure. We're talking about mobilizing the infrastructure for culture to be able to function better and for more people. So what do people, um, you know, the, the results of this survey, what did people say they thought culture was and where is the gap that you're talking about? Because I feel like well, we've I, talked a little bit about the gap, but not what the, the two poles are exactly. Well, I think that, you know, um, I think that there is this kind of reunion, I mean, as the kind of Congress of Art and Life's name kind of indicates, there is this union of lived experience and culture um, that is um, far less segregated than a museum might 
make you feel that it is, right? So I think that for most folks, like listening to music while cooking for your family is a cultural experience, you know? <laughs> um, and that isn't necessarily how you feel when you're in a museum, right? And so and they don't necessarily have to be the same. I think one of the really beautiful things about cultural space is how different it can feel and be. I mean, when you go to an event for the laundromat project feels really different from when you go to the Met, for example. And that's good. Like, I like those different experiences. They don't all have to be the same. Um, but I think that for this kind, the kind of engagement that we're talking about, people need to feel like they themselves are reflected in that space, whatever it is, and however that might be manifest. They feel a desire um, to um, to also be inspired. You know, like there is this desire for wonder, at the same time that there is a real desire to engage with the harsh realities that we all encounter in our daily lives. So there's this big like mix of desire, you know, of what people want out of cultural experience that, um, that I think feels a little constrained in the ways in which, um, you know, cultural spaces are typically organized, museums particularly. Um, so, so I think breaking down that, um, breaking in part the communication piece, this idea about exchange rather than broadcast from the part of the museum is a key aspect to that because it repositions the authority, right? I think that so much, as you were pointing out, William, so much of the authority has been placed in the museum, which on one hand is great, like, because people trust museums and they, you know, there is this great kind of um, desire. I mean, as, as um, you know, not an alternative, Becca Economopoulos and Jason Jones have always talked about in their Natural History Museum project, like, it's part of that trust in the museum that enables them to do the climate work that they're doing through that platform. So it's not necessarily like a complete and utter blow up of what's happening currently. It is like, it's to create, it's like to kind of zhuzh the methodologies in a way that kind of undoes some of the things that reinforce exclusion and inequity and replace those with things that, with, with methodologies that actually, um, you know, engage publics on their own terms, you know? Yeah, I mean, what I what I was really responding to in the book when I got to the chapter on it was that you're really talking about a democratic process, right? restoring a democratic process to um, civic life, to cultural life, that is, it, that is not present in the museums as they currently exist, right? Like public access or public education, you know, you're, you've been talking about it as, you know, the broadcast model. Like, I think in the book you say, you know, your goal is not to have the museum transform visitors, you know, um, in, in that way that is going to maybe create a specific kind of citizen with a certain kind of values that <clears throat> will improve lives. Um, I, I think it was like Roman Abramovich, the Russian collector had this unfortunate video of, it's like an animation of, of kids with baggy pants and hats on sideways walking into the contemporary art museum and coming out with like their pants up and, you know, like just cringeworthy images of this idea of the museum as this sort of like transformative, civilizing space, which is not 
it all. <laughs> what I think, you know, and I think you agree in the, the nature of the, the book is that that's not the goal of the museums. The, the goal is to move away from that kind of top-down cultural transmission to create a space where, and I love that that phrase, a place of exchange rather than just reception yeah. and, and very passive reception, right? I mean, I, I think one of the questions Patty has was sort of comparing the museum to the public library. And the first distinction I thought about is that if I can go to a free public library, I can borrow a book. You know, I'm not going to keep it <laughs> or I'll owe some late fees, but I certainly have access to it in a way that um, feels familiar in a way that you might run a videotape or something else. Whereas buying or owning art is not very common, right? And then the museum is built around this kind of collection of artifacts, some of which have been stolen from other cultures throughout history. Others are prohibitively expensive and the museums rely on the donors to get those artifacts, you know, the cultural objects. And the idea of, of exchange around that, um, I think is really fascinating. And I'd love, you know, like thinking more about how people would engage or interact um, with works uh, or, or museums, but also as sites of kind of production and being co-participants in that, that production of knowledge that you um, talk about and having a voice, you know, um, in, in, in that, that for me, um, one of the projects that you cite, I think it's called See Art, Get Paid. Yeah, look at yeah. art, look, look at, at art. Look at art, get paid, which yeah. flips the whole thing on its head of like, yeah. museums are alienating. What if we pay people to come and check these out and ask you know, their thoughts and, on that? And, have, and name them as the experts in what makes this a problem. And, and, and this is like where I talk, where I'm interested in like, whose authority we're talking about here. Because just because I work in a, in a museum doesn't mean I know anything more than anyone else, you know? Um, I may have very specialized knowledge in X field or in Y history or in a very particular thing, but it the way that one encounters the world is, is also a very particular knowledge base. So, you know, one of the things that I was really interested in doing at the Queens Museum, which I didn't get a chance to do, but we did get a Mellon grant for, was kind of reimagining, um, you know, both the physical entry into the museum and, um, and uh, all of the, um, kind of wall texts and other communications that are provided at museums. Because one of our great struggles was how to deal with museum admission, right? Um, you know, we, the Queen's Museum is a CIG, which means that it is, uh, it has part of its operating budget that the city um, pays for because the building in which it uh, it, the building which it occupies is owned by the city of New York. And it's the same as the Met and the Brooklyn Museum and the Studio Museum and now Weeksville Heritage Center, which is awesome. Um, and there's a sort of baseline. It's not, you know, I wish I could say it was like covered all operating expenses, but it doesn't. But nonetheless, it's a huge, huge help. Um, and so, you know, we were always pay what you wish, suggested admission, whatever phraseology you wanted to use. And it was incredibly complicated to explain what that meant to people who weren't accustomed to museum protocols, right? And so that was really a struggle for us because the people who we most wanted to reach with the message that you could actually pay what you wish or what you could or what you wanted. Um, were the people who were least likely to understand that language, literally in terms of whether or not they 
spoke English well enough to understand what that would mean, or even just from a cultural perspective, you know, what does it mean? Suggested admission, like it says I should pay 10 bucks a person. I've got, you know, two kids and a, my cousin and me, and so that's 40 bucks to get in. I don't even, you know, so how do you literally translate that? How do you provide a different register for folks to, and, you know, and never mind, you know, how do you do that around, you know, a curatorial text? And, you know, my position is not like blow up the museum. You know, I, I believe in museums fundamentally, I wouldn't have written this book or spent this much time thinking about this if I didn't think that they were useful cultural, you know, uh, tools, but there's a lot of stuff that needs to, get done in them to make them better. Um, and so, for example, around the, the, you know, I really thought a lot because of the linguistic diversity of the borough of Queens, I thought a lot about translation and what it would mean to have different languages, um, you know, tech, different texts, curatorial texts in particular around um, and object texts, object labels and things like that translated in different languages. And then it was like, well, which languages? And mm -hmm. And I realized at a certain point that it wasn't really about the language, like the actual language, whether it was English or Bangla or Korean or Spanish, um, yeah. but it was more about the register in which that whatever was being addressed was actually written. And, you know, at the Queens Museum, we weren't big on, you know, whatever it's called, English, international, Art English, art yes. English, <laughs> you know, we tried to be pretty direct, but, you know, it's important that the work that we did from a curatorial aspect fit into the discourse that it was that it that it was produced to participate in. You know, like it's not that suddenly curatorial work is unimportant, right? It is important still, um, and you can write, do good curatorial work without the rhetoric and the international art English. Um, but at the same time, if you're just translating whatever that is, even if it's in its most direct form, um, it's still participating in that discourse. It's still in that register. And so where my thinking went was to, okay, so how do you de how do you provide multiple entry points then? You know, how do you provide um, touchstones that fall into a variety of registers where, the people who want to engage with the curatorial text do, the people who don't, don't, but have other things to inform their visit, right? So yeah. in, in the book, like I think you, you really root a lot of, well, the introduction is basically rooted in um, your experience at the Queens Museum. For people who have not read the book, can you just give sort of a, a, a kind of summary of like what, um, they would be getting um, or what they would be reading about th throughout uh, Culture Strike? And can, can I, um, before I lose the train of thought, Patty, um, sure. the, the question of access does come up in the book, right? And I just want to kind of zoom out for one second because, you know, uh, you finished the book as the pandemic, um, you know, impacted our lives and, you know, you describe how it, and where many of us, you know, were aware of this, how it heightened and illuminated existing problems and fault lines, right? And one of the things that um, you you talk about in the book was discovering that certain cultural institutions and museums um, had contracts with, say, the NYPD 
and police organizations. And that uh, was something that was unfamiliar to you because your institutions had not done that, right? That was something that um, uh, a group that I was working with at the time, we were trying to work on another document. And the idea of, of you know, for one, just addressing the fact that institutions had contracts with the NYPD pointed us back to this idea that that idea of access before you can even get to the door of the museum, you have to go into certain neighborhoods, you have to go into areas that are patrolled and policed. And it led to a number of conversations linking that, and you talk about this, that the importance of private property, which the museum sort of represent and symbolize in this kind of epic way, right, with all the care for the objects before the people. So we were talking about the connection between policing and the museums. And that, you know, that's a barrier that as a white person of a certain class moving through a neighborhood, I may never even think about one of those invisible things, right? That like is before language or ticket prices, it's just simply feeling safe or, uh, you know, like you're allowed into that neighborhood and not literally being pushed out or surveilled. And then, you know, the, the pandemic, um, uh, you know, it, it also <laughs> was followed by the George Floyd protests and Breonna Taylor protests and a kind of real resurgence of Black Lives Matter protests in the streets. And when it sort of shifted into a point where there was any threat to private property um, through nationally reported on looting, um, you know, uh, some museums like the Whitney put up the, the plywood and instead of being sites of... Um, care, you know, that like you talk about Simone Lay's project of like a community care center, here's an opportunity for museums to maybe leave that neutrality behind and, uh, you know, let people use bathrooms to provide water, provide access and care for some of the most important protests that we're probably going to see uh, in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that didn't happen. And it really put the cards on the table for where a lot of institutions stood, you know, when that plywood went up. Um, and I, I just, I really applaud you for <laughs> uh, taking that subject matter on and talking about it in the book because it did, you know, in some ways seeing those images of plywood uh, covered museums let the public know where they stood more than any of the diversity statements that they issued. Um, and in and, 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 and a, and a roundabout way, Patty, I think the title of the book, Art in the Age of Protests, or in the Age of Protests, um, is, is, is really, you know, kind of central to the books, look at all of these kind of controversies um, that have erupted around museums. But yeah, please, Lara, if you want to respond to any of that or um, kind of also help listeners understand uh, what they can expect, you know, in, in reading the book. Yeah, I would love to talk about all of those things, actually. Um, you know, I think that, um, well, it's funny because we came up with the name of the book before COVID. Um, so that is funny, right? Uh, and, um, Amazing. yeah, I mean, um, because I was already, you know, analyzing the protests that had taken place pre 2020. Right. Um, and of course, you know, I handed my book, the first draft of my book in without the last chapter, because I handed it in, in, you know, March, 2020, you know, and then I was like, I gotta write a whole new chapter here as this thing is unfolding, and as I was the interim director of this small, beautiful mm -hmm. queer arts organization, Leslie Lohman Museum, 
and um, never having met my staff in real life and doing the whole thing via Zoom. And, you know, I mean, this was like one crisis after another, um, you know, obviously not an easy time. Um, and I think in some senses, you know, I saw playing out in some ways, a lot of these very things that I was right that I'd written about in the book in real time. And there were things that like things that I did that I surprised myself doing. And I was like, holy shit, I just did that thing that I said nobody should ever do, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's so ingrained. It's like, it's really hard to um, break these patterns. And this is where I think the imagination that we could stir up coming you know, at it from this moment, from this moment where everything seems messed up to begin with. Um, so let's not let it go back to the way it was, even though that's impossible anyway, but let's actually use it as a moment. And I'm always this half glass, half full kind of gal, which is irritating to some people, but I do see it as a moment that we could make, we could, we could kind of begin to make that change. And, you know, that's in part why I wrote the book the way that I did. Um, so I'm sorry though, Patty, bring me back to your question because I wanted to kind of get to that. Oh, well, the, 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 at, the previous question was just like, what do people get in the book? Right. Um, so, so, you know, I think I, I start the book kind of delving into my own personal history within museums because I think that my sort of addiction to the cultural sphere um, is why I'm writing the book. And it's also where my expertise is just because I've spent a lot of years in this space um, at various levels from, you know, entry level, whatever, to, you know, being a museum director. And, you know, I've, I've really done, I've done almost every job or I've been in almost every department that one could be in within cultural space. And so it's like a fun, like that to me is like a fun thing <laughs> because I like, you know, having had that experience, I liked thinking through from all the different angles of like how we could be making things better. And, um, you know, so, so clearly, you know, beginning with my own experience, beginning very importantly with a, a description of really what happened um, at the Queens Museum um, in a way that really changed the way that I operated in the cultural space. Um, that was an enormous shift for me because I decided at that moment that I could do more in that moment by being outside of the institution than within it. Um, and that I couldn't do the things that I needed to do from inside, right? And um, and so that begins the book and and then and then we transition to the to the the debacle of the Sackler uh, story um, to really unpack the way that money works in the in the arts um, and the complexities of that and the simplicity of that really um, in some ways it's not that complicated. Um, and from there, I, I really trace the history of the evolution of the museum in the United States, because that's what reveals how these spaces, especially spaces with collections, um, not only became these, these institutions to drive education, but also, um, but also where they came from in terms of that narrow bandwidth that William was talking about before of where the collections came from. They were basically things, objects that rich white men 
liked and were attracted to um, and what they had access to even. It's not even like, you know, just because you're a rich white dude doesn't mean you have access to everything in the world. Like they didn't know about a lot of stuff. So, <laughs> but because they were in a position of power, they were able to um, make these collections and maybe they or their kids got sick of caring for it. And so they donated it someplace that then gave it a place of prestige. And then those things were studied over generations and then those became markers of excellence. And so just because it's not included in there doesn't mean there isn't other excellence out there. And that's in a way, the funneling that has happened over time with um, within cultural space in terms of collections. And there are plenty of amazing cultural institutions that don't have collections, but that has created the framework in many ways for this idea about you know, judging excellence, um, which is obviously problematic because it is so raced and classed and gendered and all the rest of it. So, um, so the book kind of travels through that and then examines really the, the, the spaces of controversy that have emerged over the last couple of years that address, um, you know, uh, the way that artists work, um, the ways that um, decision-making happens around, um, around content with respect to various publics, um, looking at, um, Danish, the controversy around Dana Schutz's painting, Open Casket from the Biennial, um, then looking at the Warren Kander's uh, situation at the Whitney again, um, looking at Sam Durant's, the controversy around Sam Durant's scaffold project at the Walker, um, and, and really diving into those to unpack not only the decisions that the artists made, but really very importantly, the responses of the institutions, because I think that is, you know, I, I think a lot of focus gets put on like, why did the artist produce that thing? But it also has to do with how the institution is framed and what their responses yes. are to those moments of controversy. And so I really like, I, I, I my focus is really on the institutions in some sense. So I use what the artists proposed, right? And the controversy that that created to get into how institutions then respond or why they make those decisions to show that work in the first place and how those decisions could be made perhaps differently to avoid um, certain conflicts um, or to actually discover those conflicts before you go out and put something out in the world that maybe needs to be framed in a different way or not seen at all or maybe, you know, I mean, all kinds of questions come up, right? Um, and then, and then I really, you know, kind of reflect on neutrality and what what that means in our society and how we can look at that from other perspectives, from other fields like journalism and international negotiating positions. Um, and then I look at, you know, how do we move forward? How do we how do we do this? How do we undo what needs to be undone and redo it? Um, and you know, obviously. You know, I wrote that last chapter squarely within the pandemic. Um, and so I didn't have much room for reflection, you know. Um, and I probably would have written that chapter differently today, maybe. I don't know. I haven't reread it in a while. But um, but I think, you know, there are some fairly really easy, obvious things that we all need to be doing in, inside cultural space. Um, but there are also some like really big systemic things. And the biggest one is frankly that the, the programmatic 
diversification of programmatic work that appears in the galleries is just the very tip of the iceberg. And you know that that the that the heavy lift really comes on the operational and governance side of things of like how do we make those systemic changes that you know aren't just uh, you know the subject of whim. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, um, reading the book was sort of fascinating because at a certain point I realized, you know, you're writing this as, uh, you know, from the position of a director, somebody who managed one of these museums. And, you know, through circumstance, if things had gone badly in some other direction, I could have been one of the protesters outside your institution, mm -hmm. you know, calling for like a board member to be um, removed, um, where was the situation I found myself at outside the Whitney. But you know, so so many of the things that you're saying are just so fraught with complexity. I'm thinking about you know, I, and I'm coming at this also as an artist and thinking about what is the artist's responsibility or role in this, and that that the diversification of the programming at the institutions can also put artists into really uncomfortable and fraught positions, um, particularly when there's outside protesters calling for you know, changes uh, at museums and the artists are sort of put in a position of, should I withdraw my content? Should I not participate in this? But I'm also, um, you know, for a lot of artists, I mean, specifically with the case of the Whitney Biennial, you hear you have the most diverse Whitney Biennial in its history um, and calling, asking those artists to take their work out, put this kind of undue level potentially of responsibility on them um, to solve or rectify the situation at the museum. And so, you know, internally with that, you know, there was sort of wages early call for artists to withhold content, which was met with that very criticism. How dare you ask black and brown artists to take their work out? And who are you to ask that, you know, anyway? And then flash forward, you know, several months, you have Hannah and Toby and uh, Kieran writing you know, the uh, tear gas biennial essay saying, no, actually this is a responsibility that artists need to do. Um, and when, the, you know, several artists did withdraw their work from the Whitney biennial, it was sort of the final straw. That's right. That, 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 that put the Whitney's core mission, their stated mission right. of being there to support artists. That was, <laughs> you know, it put them, it, it, that made it clear that, you know, if artists were taking their work out, they would have to do something. And Candor's resigned, you know, shortly thereafter, which, you know, does and says sort of so many things about artists' relationship to the institutions and um, maybe the kind of cultural leverage they have within the institution. Right. I mean, I think what you're, what you're, what you're pointing out is super important. I mean, look, there is no such thing as not being complicit in this system. Right. Um, and I fully accept my own complicity, um, you know, on one level, but I also don't, um, uh, I accept it, but I don't allow it to be the constraint what I do or say, um, I hope in, you know, um, at the end of the day. Um, I think that, you know, we operate within a highly flawed system within this, you know, cultural system, within the cultural world. And, you know, um, and I think that while artists have an incredibly powerful role to play, it's often very multi-layered and also atomized. I, I, I don't think, well, first of all, I, I don't think that 
I don't think that all of the artists who withdrew their work had equal power in that situation in the sense that some of those artists whose um, you know, work was more highly prized by the institution um, definitely had greater power in that situation. And I also think that if, um, if the other protests and other things had not happened, it wouldn't have built this sort of scaffolding of support that or protest that ultimately resulted in the resignation of Warren Kanders. You know, I, I, I think that in a sense, one of the beautiful lessons from that particular, um, from that particular situation was the layering of actions that were some coordinated very closely, some less coordinated, some with overlapping members like you, you know, <laughs> but some literally not related, you know, the conversations I'm sure that were happening internally around whether or not the, you know, around the inclusion of, um, of the, um, um, uh, of the candor's kind of expose by, um, Forensic architecture. Right, forensic architecture. Yeah. Oh my God, total brain freeze uh, by forensic architecture and praxis films. That those internal discussions must have been quite potent, I imagine. Um, you know, uh, they never reached, uh, you know, our ears, but I am certain that that was like a big topic of discussion and that I'm sure that once it was installed, it continued to be. Um, internally. I think, you know, the very beautiful, in my opinion, and powerful letter that the staff wrote to the director of the museum was incredibly important on very multiple levels, very many multiple levels. Um, you know, the, the kind of support that then um, that created for the staff from the protesters you know, even if the staff sometimes felt that that was misguided and, you know, I know a lot of people internal to Whitney felt like at greater risk in their internal work because of what was happening externally, but all of that is okay and good in the end, you know what I mean? Like those tensions are important. And, you know, I, what, what I thought was really kind of, for me, the most important lesson was that layering of protest, demand, request, internal work, external work, the way those things played off of each other, whether or not they were coordinated. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, having um, been there at the first protest and going to the first decolonize this place town hall, going to direct action trainings, which, I mean, this is, it, this is not like a, a, a closely held or guarded secret, but I was part of the DIRT the institutional research team that you write, write about in your book. And I just have to thank you <laughs> um, for, for reading such a thoughtful kind of uh, analysis of what we were trying to do with that document. And um, I won't out anyone else who is part of that group, um, in part because I, I know you noted you note that Warren Kanders divested from his own um, tear gas manufacturing company, Defense Industries, or whatever that's part of Safari Land LLC. But from what I've heard, he is continuing a kind of private investigation of the activists and protesters. He's requesting all internal documentation from the Whitney staff and museum regarding any communication with anyone related to the protests. So I don't think Warren Kanders is done. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I, I feel it's a little bit low risk to talk about this on a podcast. But, you know, that 
it was interesting in the book, you compare Dirt's approach as sort of subtle to DTP's approach as relentless. And what I loved about the whole thing is that Dirt grew out of a direct action workshop where I met people I'd never met before who shared a similar interest in these kind of questions of why does this keep happening? <laughs> How can museums be different? And that led to collective work and facilitation with DTP to develop an autonomous working group that uh, members could remain um, anonymous in part because they were fearful for retaliation potentially. Um, well, or, and that's real. I mean, yeah, it's very real. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also, you know, things like credentialing. I mean, somebody was just upset, you know, at one of the training groups that like a sort of male activist came over and said, who are you? What do you do? You know, prove this to me. Mm -hmm. And that was something that they were not interested in doing. Um, you know, showing up and being part of it and doing the work was sort of crucial. Um, but, you know, through that, that, that nine weeks, we were able to produce that, that document as a collective effort that I had no interest in sort of centering on my own identity as an artist or practice, but also decentering um, the whiteness in a kind of heterogeneous group um, so that we could move forward with the work and move alongside DTP, which was a POC-led formation, right? And it, it has me thinking um, a lot about how and who does the work in activist circles and within institutions and museums, because one of the main differences between us right now is that I've never been paid for any of that work. You know, it's it's not a paid position. Um, and and it as an artist, I've also worked for not for money for a lot of things, you know, or hoping that I might get paid. Um, and, it, and it always comes back around to this question of how do we um, compensate people for uh, this work? And, and, you know, this work often involves this question of what debts do we owe each other? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's it because your book is so rooted in these questions of race and class and gender and undoing white supremacy and sort of whiteness, these questions are really difficult um, to answer in terms of who is asked to do the work um, and who is representing um, both say museums on one hand, but also activist organizations and trying to find some kind of balance between um, yeah. asking people to do work and also represent their voices and interests and set the values and goals. And when I, when I saw the look at art get paid thing, I was like, I just wish we had more money, you know, in some degree to pay people for their time and energy and expertise in situations where I find myself not having any resources or with people in a room who would never accept a dime from the Ford Foundation, unless it was potentially no strings attached or there was they weren't setting the terms of the work or even participating in the work, um, which has made it very difficult, you know, just um, from a personal kind of activist perspective um, to kind of keep, keep something going like that. And, and I think, you know, I think your book addresses uh, a, a lot of these sort of questions and has really important information for people um, to think about how to create these spaces for imagination and for rethinking yeah. the terms of these things. I mean, I, I, I make the point in the book that this is not about, you know, um, like I don't have answers because they would not be the right answers, you know, because they would just for me and my experiences and clearly that's limited to my worldview and my life and whatever my various overlapping identities and so 
that the work needs to be profoundly collective is so obvious to me. And, um, and the, the fact also that the very um, nature of the collective um, within a cultural institution is so often negated by the kind of bright light that's shown on either the director or the curator or whatever. And those are functions of capitalism. I mean, you know, the, the I knew when I took the role at the Queens Museum that I was expected to perform in these very particular ways to claim credit so that I could get people to believe in me so that they'd write the check. I mean, you know, this is the way I, I understood that. It's not, it's not like the part of the job I loved the most, but I understood that that was the game I had to play, um, you know, which is why I'm interested also, because I don't think that those jobs are sustainable either, no matter how much money they want to dangle in front of you. I mean, you know, I, I, I think that those, it's not worth it. I mean, I've been in the, that position and, uh, you know, I, I, the Queens Museum didn't pay me you know, as much money as, you know, many of these other people. You didn't get an apartment in Manhattan. No, I had no apartment. <laughs> I didn't have an apartment. Um, no, I got paid fine. But, you know, like the, the, for me, the problem is that, that, um, that, that vast discrepancy between, you know, the director and the next highest paid worker or the lowest paid worker um, is so great. And it's mirroring these wealth inequities that we're seeing, you know, exacerbated across society. And that's like not, like, first of all, why? Um, <laughs> you know, and maybe, uh, you know, that there's all this kind of pressure and kind of accountability, quote unquote, um, you know, dumped on that director position, maybe that needs to be, you know, multiple people. And how would that work if there were a group of people who were accountable to one another and not just divvied up like, you know, Patty, you handle the programming and William, you handle the finances and Laura's going to go deal with the fundraising. No, I don't like that. We have to be accountable to each other for all of those things because we each bring skills in all of those areas, right? So like, maybe that's an interesting way of doing it. And, you know, we divvy it up. So it's also not such a shitty job. Yeah, I appreciate that idea of divvying up the labor, you know, and picking it up when you can and when you have the time and the resources and stepping back when your voice isn't necessarily the wisest one to be listening to at the moment. That's right. Patty, sorry, I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've had some a couple of things to say. Um, you know, I was just really interested in the kind of relationship that comes up, um, you know, in the book and also like in some of the interviews that you've done um, that between institutional structures and I think the atomization of culture, um, because like, I think, you know, you talked at one point about how we forget that these um, structures are run by individuals um, and that that, um, you know, that these, but then like, um, we also need these structures to support um, individual actions. And I keep thinking about like something that happened, this, this came up in a conversation I had with a, another artist, um, Travis Leroy, Leroy um, Southworth. We were talking about the phenomenon of the litter bug in the 1980s which talked about, you know, there was a lot of kind of demonization of people who were litter bugs, people who were 
who were the problem. And that on the one hand, we all, um, you know, as artists and art workers, as arts leaders, we all have um, a responsibility. Um, but on the other, I do think that like that was a very good example of um, a kind of institutional shift of blame where there are some people who can do a lot more than others, right? And we've talked about this a bunch in the podcast so far too, where there are different people who have different levels of power and that also can kind of shift responsibility. And I just wonder, you know, um, I think it's like a little too simplistic to ask things like, can collective work happen for free because we know that it does. Um, but like what, I just wonder what is needed um, to like, sorry, there's sort of a bunch of things going on, but like on the one hand, I, I wonder like, is this atomization that we're looking at um, a symptom of institutional failure, right? Because if we, if we can't rely on our institutions to do things, then we have to rely on ourselves. And can we, right. you know, to what degree um, can, um, to what degree can, can we really come together when we are atomized like this? Because it, it seems like one of the things that you really experience in the book is these varying interests that don't, they don't feel like they have protection. Right. Well, I don't know that, um, I, well, I definitely don't think I have an answer to that question, but I, but I do think that it's important to try. I mean, and, and here's, and here's the thing is, you know, uh, and, and maybe I'm not an answering the right question is like, you know, in a sense, um, you know, the discrepancies in power that you're talking about um, go back to maybe what we were talking about right before we started recording, um, which is that in a sense, you know, protest and the ways in which people communicate their needs and their desires, for example, as a staff to senior management um, is a gift. It's like a statement of what I need in order to keep doing the work that I do. And in a way, it, it's sort of shocking to me the degree to which um, people resist even hearing that, um, even acknowledging that that's what it is. Um, and I mean, I've been in those situations where because of the the financial realities, the governance realities of what, you know, a board may be demanding, et cetera, it feels overwhelming to be in that position to feel very caught between the demands and desires and needs of a staff, for example, and the financial realities and, you know, demands of a, of a governing body like a board. Um, and so there's, there's this kind of squeeze there, but I still feel like if you've done the work of properly connecting to the human beings that you work with on the daily, you have a responsibility and you should want to understand what those desires and needs are and 
to treat their their expression as a, a gift that you need to care for, right? And so how do you then negotiate with them to enact what they need, you know? And, and, and I think part of that comes with like, you know, actually talking about the tough things and being transparent about like what the budget means and what it looks like. I mean, every institution that I've worked for has had different relationships to sharing budgets. And, and how institutional budgets work. And obviously with smaller institutions, a little easier, but you know, just because it's not as complex. But at the end of the day, every single person in the organization should understand the way that the money works. And that that's not somehow like a weird thing. Um, you know, and there should be salary transparency and all of these other things, but also like. To, to understand literally the cost of health insurance for, to the operations of an institution is insane. There's a period when I worked at DIA where every year the cost of health insurance went up 20%. And that was like, I, I don't know how to manage that. There's no managing 20% increase on a huge expense, you know? And, and so like, that's a stressful reality when you're trying to care for a staff and make sure that they have good health insurance, right? So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, actually having those conversations, but that would require more time. And what you can almost universally hear within cultural space is that there's no time. And that's because we're producing too much too fast and we've let the, that production take over our human relationships. And that productivity has been privileged over who we each are and how we relate to one another. And I think like undoing some of that, and this is like, you know, basic stuff. Like we've got to come together to talk about who we are, who we are as people, like, how do we relate? What do we need? What do we need to, from day to day? You know, I would, at, at a certain point there were salaries when I walked into the Queens Museum that I was like, I literally don't understand how you don't eat lentils every night. Like, how do you put food on your table? Like, I know you have a child, like, this is like unconscionable, you know? And so, you know, th that's the part that we need to spend some time doing. So we need to slow down. Yeah, and I mean- reject, And reject that productivity, you know? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen it in relationship to uh, museum expansions, you know, watching museums pour millions of dollars into bigger, spaces to do more, to show more, to show more of the collection and speeding that up. I think there was a really memorable quote that you cited that was a very memorable um, quote from somebody, I think from the Sea Art Get Paid, who said that, you know, they take care, better care of these paintings than they do the people or. I mean, that just hits you like a punch in the gut, you know, and I think, you know, that when, when that expert um, or guest critic said that, you know, I thought, oh my God, if I were working at the RISD Museum and heard that somebody said that, I would just be devastated, you know? And the thing is, it's, you know, as I think Maya says in, um, in, in, in my interview with her, you know, it, most people know what the problems are within cultural space. It's just that either for whatever, for any various, you know, and not all horrible reasons, they can't, make that the priority because that's not what they're allowed to do. 
And so, you know, it's not, but it's not just between museum worker and public. It's also between museum workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was, uh, I was also curious of what your sort of take was on the strike MoMA events that have been sort of happening because all of the problems you discuss in the book in terms of um, divisions between the uh, workers, you know, MoMA is a very siloed institution um, between the, the way management and the museum's director responded to what was happening outside, um, you know, spoke with a few of the museum workers who were coming outside and taking sort of great risks to express some solidarity with it. Um, you know, and this was all caught up in in a, a event that I think confused a lot of people. I mean, I, I witnessed some Twitter fights where people were debating what was being called for um, when when uh, Strike MoMA called for the um, uh, you know abolishing MoMA. And there was like a recent interview with uh, Mean Hussein, and he says the goal isn't to abolish MoMA. Dot dot dot. The goal is to leave the terms of MoMA. The art needs to be liberated. The institutions need to be held accountable and the workers need to be in control. And I I thought that was a fairly clear sort of statement by Amin about what they mean by sort of abolishing MoMA. And one of the things I really loved about your book is that you tie um, museums and this idea of neutrality to modernism and to modern society and where these ideas of universality and neutrality come from. You know, I was thinking about Kant half the time I was reading your book where he's like, if I can have an aesthetic experience, it's possible you could too, (laughs) Uh, because we're both human. And it's like, well, humans have very different cultural experiences based on race, gender, class, and geography. I mean, there's so many differences, right? That are crucial for understanding any kind of um, intersectional uh, understanding of society, you know, and and on the left, it's been so complex to watch people grapple with this, who may share certain political beliefs. Um, and on the other side of it, we have the right literally trying to pass laws banning critical race theory in schools, and they don't even understand what the fuck they're talking about. So I find it to be such a really difficult time to imagine um, that serve more the most positive aspects of your book. I think that possible, and I really know um, from experience that there are a lot of people engaging in this kind of work in many different settings. I mean, there's the um, artist census in LA that's taking place. The Sally Transparency worksheets you've been talking about. Um, you know, when when it was discovered that like certain museums had contracts with the NYPD. I've never seen a spreadsheet populated faster in my life than the information that came pouring into that, you know? And so we have these kind of tools that people are putting together. And, you know, I think there's there's a lot more communication between groups than maybe there was in the past and potentially that might lead to something. Um, well, but, one, of the yeah. that, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that Simultaneous to the Art and Society Census program that was happening in June, there was also this really cool project that Laundromat Project was doing and the meetings that a subgroup, I think, of Strike Momo was doing around envisioning the future. And I got in touch. Um, I wanted to kind of bring the three together because it seems like there's so much common ground, but also like very different people are participating in each of those. And so I kind of wanted to sort of try to de-silo some of that. Um, 
just to even cross pollinate and not to say that like we should come together and make one big massive statement you know like I, I'm inter I, I think that it's fine for different projects to emerge because I think you know you do get but but like it would be fun to talk about what's coming up in, in our different uh you know pockets um and it could provide some other clues as to how to iterate it you know because I think the name of the game right now is iteration and experimentation and I think where I'm seeing that happen most is in much smaller organizations like recess which recently went to a bifurcated directorship position and you know like and it's interesting because it feels like there's a lot of I mean there's a lot of very interesting thinking happening in those less um yeah, in the smaller, more flexible spaces. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, I don't think that, I mean, I, I, look, I, I'm not sure that the Met is going to turn around and kind of do a bottom-up re-envisioning of its functioning. Like, that's never going to happen. And the Met's just going to be the Met, which is like what it is. Um, but there are things the Met can do to be better. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I still want that. I'm not going to write the Met off because I don't think they're capable of, you know, being the most radical thing on the planet. Like it's just not going to happen. But I love like Miguel Luciano's project there and what they're doing through the, the, what is it called? Like the public, I don't remember, um, like the public uh, it's called something good. It has a good name. Even though I can't remember. Right <laughs> what, what what is Miguel's project, by the way? I, I I know Miguel has got a studio around the corner and we teach at SVA, but I haven't seen him much during the pandemic. Yeah. So he um so he's one of he's a it's like um I think Sandra Dumont Jackson Dumont started this program before she left um and it's called something good um <laughs> and Miguel is in residence there as one of these like public fellows or something for like a year. Um, and so he started with this amazing project in the Bronx where he connected, um, which was before the pandemic actually, um, where he connected uh, the Young Lords and the Black Panther work that was the radical cultural work that was happening um, in El Barrio and um, really amazing sort of uh, social history project and cultural history project um, where he gave tours of physical locations and talked about the specific histories and the overlap between um, between the Young Lords and the Panthers. Um, and then uh, he's also, um, I think there's some other stuff that goes along with that and that transitions into um, this t-shirt that he made recently called that says El Met. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, which is kind of funny yeah. and kind of like at first I was like really and then I was like that's kind of awesome you know um, and uh, anyway and so so he's working on this whole kind of like public interface with kind of northeastern Manhattan and the Met um, so anyway um, yeah, but yeah. I but I think I think like there are always going to be like zones of weirdness within institutions where artists can operate in really cool ways. 
um, to break things down and especially in big spaces like that. And I think there is this kind of like infiltration mode that I think we need to get into. Um, not because we can, we're necessarily relying on that transforming the institution top to bottom, um, but because it shows that the art is really the powerful thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you this know. is what, and, and you know, part of where I get my greatest inspiration is from the kind of structures that artists who I love have invented, um, you know, to utilize other infrastructures to make something that looks totally different, you know, and that we can experience as a space that is real for that moment. And then we're like, oh my God, but other things could be like this too, right? Like that to me is the magic. I love the term terms of it, it, just zones of weirdness within institutional spaces. <laughs> I think that's just brilliant. Yeah, and, well, because there are always going to be these places, right, where you're like, I don't know what the fuck is going on over there. So I'm just. Like, how did that possibly yeah. happen? You yeah, know, who and, got that? Okay, as a director, okay. as a former museum director, like there are people I just let do what they do, you know, like, you know, there's some places where I'm just like, all right, I'm just gonna like do that. Cause I want you to keep going and I don't need to know the details. You know? Yeah, I mean, part of this, what it highlights for me is that, you know, I think when strike moment happened, there were a lot of people who, you know, that same fear when you start criticizing board members that the money's going to go away and you get Jerry Saltz down there saying you're hurting the museum. And then when the bad board member goes away, he comes back around and says, this is great for the museum. But that that fear that, you know, like uh, Strike MoMA is going to physically take apart MoMA and um, jettison into space. But it's is, like so absurd. I mean, the is idea absurd. is absurd. But that was the kind of tactic used, I think, in response to how could MoMA be reimagined, you know, um, to kind of right. like strike guess, fear into people. Um, I think the desire was to say... I mean, look, why would you, if you actually wanted to abolish MoMA, you wouldn't protest it, you'd just ignore it. I mean, this is why protest is a form of radical care, because if you actually didn't care about it, you wouldn't bother, because it's hard work, right? Yeah, and you know, I mean, there was, there was also a part of holding MoMA accountable to like letting their educators go at the onset of the pandemic, you know, central to their mission and nonprofit status and the core of your book. You know, um, those educators, whether it's a transmission model or not, were a real interface with the public, right? And they're the first person, the first people to be like, we're not going to renew your contracts until this is over, even though so much of the education shifted online. You know, I could imagine ways that they could have paid everyone and kept them, um, you know, maybe safer during the pandemic or at least economically stable. Um, but the idea of strike moment that, you know, that strike struck fear in people's heart prevented those sort of conversations about how could it be, you know, different. And I felt like it was a real, it was one of those kind of litmus tests in the art world that if somebody, you know, reacted sort of negatively to it or fearfully, maybe they just wanted or didn't understand what was sort of being called for. Um, or I think, just part of, I think part of the problem was the interpretation of the word abolish. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was instrumentalized, frankly. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's already been instrumentalized by the right, right? You know, if you talk yeah. about abolish the police is distinct from defund the police, which Jerry Saltz couldn't even, again, accept, like, the idea of defunding, that that, that was the left shooting itself in the foot or something, right? But Yeah, I mean, the, the whole, I mean, defunding the police and funding actual, like, mental health work right. and other things, I mean, 
just or funding more Simone Way projects, you know, that, yeah. that provide care and services. I mean, this is a the I think part of it, the core of what the book is about is how do we shift resources and priorities to different communities and different people and serve different functions within museums. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, I, obviously I don't imagine them becoming complete community centers with no objects or collections, but. No, yeah. and also different institutions will do it differently. Like I don't have a problem with that. I really think like the Queens Museum has an ongoing food pantry since has, has been in part an ongoing food pantry since the middle of the pandemic. Like that is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, ought, like is awesome. Like, you know, being a voting site, being, I mean, I always used to argue, you know, when, when, when I first got thrown the, we need to be, you know, neutral and you can't, you know, we're, yeah, we're not or whatever, you know, I said, look, we're a cooling center for when it gets really hot. Like we are a designated cooling center. Like that makes sense because we have air conditioning that is on the grid that's paid for by the city because we're in the park and we're part, we're a CIG. We should be a cooling center. Let's be that. You know, so one of the things I thought was really um, interesting about the, the book um, was that you had, um, like very early on, you interviewed Cora Fisher of the Brooklyn Museum Library, or she, you'd cited her for centering accessibility um, as their um, intellectual framework. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was really interesting that um, it was, a, I mean, Cora comes um, from a long muse museological um background before she came to the uh, library, but I thought it was really interesting that the library was um, your site of choice because I felt like in the pandemic, one of the things we saw libraries really coming to the fore was as spaces um, used for organizing and delivering social services. And I wondered whether like, there was any kind of lesson there that that you had sort of beyond, um, you know, Cora's uh, and and the library's central message. Like, what is it that they're they're getting that museums aren't, and why? Well, th there's there are a few things. I mean, in my thinking about the library piece, um, one is um, one weird sameness is how libraries emerged in the US is remarkably similar to museums, except they developed really differently. And there's something that I don't understand about the distance that library and the public function that libraries take as their core mission that is somehow dissimilar, somehow and importantly dissimilar from the way that cultural space does, right? So like in somehow within the, even though libraries are also like extremely well-funded by private donors and, you know, have the same kinds of extremely wealthy boards that museums do, there is a certain like much thicker buffer zone between the service to the public piece and, um, and that, those funding sources. So that's one Thing that I just think is remarkable and I don't fully understand. 
Um, the other thing that I think is really important about the library is its physical accessibility through branches. And that, you know, for example, in Queens, there is a library within basically a mile, give or take, of every residence of Queens. Yes. And that, that just changes everything, right? It's like, if there's a library in my neighborhood that like everyone I know goes to when they're working on their school project or whatever, which is why I was really interested in what it would do to have a branch library in the Queens Museum, which was the plan when I took over there. Um, and I thought this was like an actual physical manifestation of the exchange of knowledges that I was talking about, as opposed to just broadcasting, because it allowed folks to come in and, you know, and, and one of the challenges, great challenges of the Queens Museum is its location in the park. And one of the great advantages of its is its location in the park, right? So it's hard to get there. Once you're there, it's awesome. You know, a lot of people go to the park. I mean, that park is the most, one of the most used parks in all of New York City. Um, the challenge is getting people who are hanging out outside the park into the museum, whether they think it's for them, you know, the library might've helped to break that dichotomy down. Um, being a cooling center helps break that dichotomy down. Um, but, um, you know, but not being a neighborhood library would have meant that like, I don't know, would people have, you know, a lot of libraries are used by kids who like, whose parents are working. And so they have to go someplace to hang out after school. That's not home. They need like a third space, but like, could a museum ever become that, you know, um, the, the kind of centralization of the resources of the museum are really um, obvi an obvious difference. So while you have the main libraries, the central library, you know, the Brooklyn Public Library's main branch on Grand Army Plaza or the Jamaica Library, like those are big footprints, but there are all of these other footprints out there. Um, and the fact that it has literally the word public in the name, like, my local library is like the Muhlenberg Library, but nobody knows that. It's just like the library, you know? Yeah, I mean, your book does a really good job of breaking down some of the differences between, you know, public libraries and museums, which may, may be nonprofit, but are still pub, like privately um, created and managed institutions that, you know, again, um, are there for the public good, right? right. And so, they have a mission or they're supposed to be holding art objects in public trust, you know? Um, and so there, there are, you know, I think some important differences. I mean, in part because the museums are caring for these sort of priceless objects, right? Whereas a paperback book can get destroyed. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the containers for the knowledge <laughs> of, are, are rather different. One thing that I really appreciated, and Patty pointed this out in our kind of outline for this, is that you define what um, what the limits of kind of neutrality have to be maintained for the specific kinds of nonprofits that museums are. And there are really only two key points, right? Mm -hmm. um, that... Um, oh, you mean for the, to maintain your 501c3 yes. status? Yeah. And, yeah, you can read that on the IRS's Web page. I yeah. mean, anyone can go and find it. It's very simply written. It's not some like legalese 
thing. I, when I read it, I was laughing because I was in a show at the Aldrich uh, called 2020 that was specifically designed to address the election, right? And I knew that, you know, sort of, uh, there were going to be some limits. And so I looked up those guidelines on the IRS website and they ended up publishing these rules on uh, one of the publications for the show. And the way we defined it was no, your museum can't tell employees or visitors whom to vote for, favor any candidate or party in any way, allow late arrival or early departure for campaign work, allow staff to participate in the political campaign on organi organization time, or allow staff to use organization supplies, facilities, or resource resources in support of, of or opposition to any candidate or party. Um, there's a, there were a few more like little details that I found, but like I felt like the artwork that I was making for that show might put the museum in some sort of jeopardy if, if uh, a board member got angry or someone from the public uh, got upset, but thankfully that wasn't the case. But you, uh, you know, reading the book, it was in the context of Trump's, you know, election and victory and, you know, any moves that museums made that disagreed with that kind of political orthodoxy, that conservatism um, was met with, you know, some scary responses, you know. Well, either that or just like, you know, it was like, of course, that's what MoMA would do is pull all of the artists in the collection who's who would not be allowed to travel to the United States. And I thought that was a beautiful gesture. It was remained in that in that symbolic space. Mm -hmm. and I and I believe in symbolic gestures. I think they're extremely important. Um, but I also believe that for a place like the Queen's Museum, which has a very different relationship to the immigrant communities that were being so deeply impacted, that other steps needed to be taken. And um, you know, so I think in the same way that there should be a broad diversity of the ways in which art and culture is manifest within, different types of cultural space, those relationships to the external world also need to be negotiated individually. And so it's not like one size fits all here, you know. I think that, you know, when when there was a mayoral town hall, literally at the local school in Corona that's closest to the Queens Museum, where the mayor brought out uniform police and every single deputy mayor and um, and major department head to reassure publics that they, regardless of their documentation status, were New Yorkers and that that was going to be um, the highest priority. Um, clearly, there was something that a function that the museum could have in that kind of an atmosphere that would be supportive to that message. And not that I'm interested in necessarily supporting Bill de Blasio, I'm interested in supporting the people who were in dire fear of leaving their homes. I mean, a lot of kids weren't going to school. This was not some like, you know, bad vibes. This was like the reality of people's material lived existence. Yeah, and I think one thing that's really important about the book, and I'm glad you published it, is that we're also, I've been hearing this from other activists and people um, doing volunteer work, that resources are drying up. You know, we're seeing it, we know that unemployment, federal um, benefits are going to be uh, expiring in September. We have uh, eviction moratoriums, you know, sort of slowly uh, expiring, and there's not really a lot of plans in place. Um, 
but there's also, you know, a kind of um, sense that, uh, well, Biden's in office, you know, we can kind of relax and we don't have to necessarily continue to fight these battles in the same way. And, and you know, that, that is, I guess, worrying on some level because it, it sort of lets people off the hook from the work that you outlined in the book that is so deeply necessary. And that lack of resources sort of led me think when I was done with the book, I was sort of thinking like, well, how do we fund, how do we fund this work? How do we get to that place where you could balance private philanthropy with greater public funding? Because, you know, in, in, in my existence as an artist, on one hand, the city has 25 million for the artist corps grants, mm -hmm. right? And then the Mellon Foundation has $150 million in private funding. And one of those is coming out of public funding, um, it's coming, there's some level of democratic process within that and selection. I have no idea how the Mellon Foundation money is being distributed or, you know, and, and I know that- The Mellon Foundation money exists because we gave the Mellon Foundation, we, the public of the United States, gave them the tax status. Yeah, the write-off, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Pre-tax donation write-off, right? Which you make the argument in the book that that is a, a public subsidy in a way, but it it doesn't um, have the same democratic process that no. the art, <laughs> uh, art and society. But, per, but perhaps it should. I mean, yes, perhaps, right? perhaps it should, perhaps because of that relationship to the public gifting that to the Mellon Foundation, mm -hmm. that the public should then have a different kind of role within its administration. And I, you know, that may be a scary proposal to make to the Mellon Foundation. Um, it may be a scary proposal for me to even make out loud, but the real, you know, this is why I get into the space of the imagination thing being so important because it's like, well, if we actually believed that as a society that we gifted that the public as a entity gifted that, then we would be demanding other things. Right. If we believed in democracy as much as we sort of say we do, um, we wouldn't be so afraid to practice it, you know, at I the local level, you know. Part of believing in democracy is believing in taxation, right? Like, um, and we, it used to be very common to just assume that uh, a tax rate would be very high for the wealthy. And somehow that has been that notion has been discarded as something that's valuable, which makes it very politically difficult to make changes that, that need to happen. But, right. you know, there is, there is really no reason that somebody making a bazillion dollars should not be taxed at a very, very high rate. Or even at a not so high rate that goes to like, you know, back to the, mid 80s i mean you know we're I, it's like i i don't even need to turn back the clock that far um you know to 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 tax people at an appropriate rate who are making enormous sums of money you I know think the I, mid 80s is what got us in this mess in the first place it's reagan i mean laura i love laura <laughs> i love your, your outline of like the, the line of reagan through thatcher and to the kind of neoliberalism that and clinton Clinton, absolutely. I mean, this I, I've done drawings that kind of trace these um, policies myself, and I, I'm glad you uh, brought up Anand 
uh, Anand's book, Winners Take All, yeah. because it, it does, it, you know, in the art world, we're in that place where we're so reliant on philanthropy and we're reliant on, in some cases, them setting the terms for how we might go about reforming the structures. And Anand's like, you can't ask, <laughs> you know, uh, the philanthropist to sort of reform themselves. They're probably not going to really let you change the structures that have allowed them to amass these fortunes. Um, and, you know, so, so there is a real struggle and a conflict, you know, that is going to have to continue to be sort of waged. And I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to leave the podcast as sort of sounding like a miserable person or that this the age of protest will never end, but I don't see it getting any easier before it gets more difficult or requires more participation. And I mean, I, I was really inspired by the project that you were doing because um, I would love to see your project coupled with like everyone who is involved with the people's cultural plan and bring together, you know, both the policy platforms that are, were, were sort of written and created by that community with a broader community's needs and wants and desires because culture and the people's cultural plan, you can't separate it from the community. You can't separate it from the people. And yeah, it starts to look very different if you're talking about culture design for some abstract concept of a European male identity and what the folks are doing in Queens, you know? Well, and it doesn't mean you can't have both, but you know, you gotta have a major, pretty major rebalancing and the systems yeah. that are supporting the production mm -hmm. of that need to shift in kind, because if they don't change, it becomes subject to the trend. And yeah. well, you, know, you don't want all cause shows, right? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah, exactly. And, and also, and, but I'm not sure that cause is serving. I mean, whatever, my opinions aside. Um, let's just say this, um, popular doesn't necessarily mean uh, that it's beloved. Right. You know what I mean? Or like, it's, it's like tapping into some meat meeting for folks I, and I don't mean to sound like mean about cause but yeah. you know plenty of people are getting joy out of it that's awesome it, he's he's the you know for better or worse that symbol of sort of popularity in a way but if that is that can't be the only measure right no you know? and I and, and I think that that's actually like a misguided um you know that 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 while those are that that those while those examples like cause are very easy to pick up on as like what's popular, I think that is also what museums imagine is popular and not actually potentially what would be popular. So you know, I challenge even the idea of that like kind of blockbuster popular show. It's like how many? I think the Brooklyn Museum did two sneaker exhibitions, and mm. they were like popular. I don't know, like maybe there was something better that the Queen, that the, that the Brooklyn Museum could have done with that, with those resources to kind of tap I'm into thinking the same thing, like that the that cause was somehow just like a limited imagination because there's so many, there's, there is a lot of cultural ephemera out there that's very relevant that does not have to be tied to this like one individual's production. But that loops us back to that kind of star system that, you know, yeah. culture is sort of reliant upon that sort of manifests in so many ways, whether it's the singular star director, the singular star artist, the singular star art critic. Yes. Um, you know, and that, that, that so much of culture operates to keep those systems sort of in place. And, you know, just found that collective efforts and collectivity and um, decentering that kind of individual attention um, 
is amazing and necessary, it presents different challenges because it becomes illegible to the media and the public. Um, and, and it's also hard to say if somebody asks you the question, what kind of work have you been doing to decenter whiteness or push abolitionist policies or land back or reparations? And if the work you're doing is not um, immediately attached to your name, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's hard to, to um, prove what well, you're up to. Ideally, it's not attached to your name. I mean, or it's not attached to my name because my name has certain very particular meanings. So uh, for a lot of folks. So, you know, I, I think, um, I mean, I, I have a really hard time with balancing this kind of, you know, the cringiness of like the virtue signaling that you mm -hmm. see and then but one uh, so let me just say this because I think to me this is this was an important lesson that I was um that I learned when I was in Australia um where you know you know land acknowledgments had been it was uh, the fall of 2019 uh the fall of 2019 when I went and um and it was really interesting because like you know land acknowledgments were becoming more normalized here um in the u.s and um and i had sort of been like a little bit irritated by it because i felt like it was this kind of method of virtue signaling without really doing the work and i felt like if you were going to do a land acknowledgement it meant that you, you really needed was to be doing some really robust work behind that um to 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 attend to um to indigeneity and centering that in your work in some way, right? Um, and I went to Australia and there the land acknowledgements are rattled off like at every single, every single event um, of any size, shape, form, whatever. And I was talking to um, a woman who headed up the, uh, or was like curator at the, um, at uh, one of the major cultural institutions that had a um, Aboriginal studies uh, department. And I said, I said to her, I was, and she was indigenous. And I said to her, um, you know, you know, what do you think about the land acknowledgements? Like, does it sometimes feel like just virtue signaling and it's like you just this route, route thing that people are doing or rote thing people are doing? And she said, well, you know, she said, it's so fucked up that you got to start somewhere, <laughs> you know? And she said that, you know, even if it is the most stodgy, lame-ass acknowledgement ever, it's better than it not being there because it actually signals the reality. And I thought, right, that is important. And, um, and she said, and also what's been really nice, and I did witness this as I traveled a bit in the couple of weeks I was there, was that people were personalizing them and not just giving the kind of canned institutional lines of the acknowledgement, um, but actually being more personal about it and just, and making it more casual and not like it's this big reverential kind of mystery inducing, almost ritualistic thing that seems sort of tokenizing, but rather making it super personal and saying like, this is what the land has meant to me and you know, da da da. And so I thought that was really important and resonant. And I was like, oh, this is like an important thing to learn. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, the, the sort of arts union organizing that I've been a part of for 
the last year and a half, one of the things that we've put into practice at every meeting, every general meeting that's open to people that find out about it, um, is doing acknowledgements. And it's a rotating thing. And one of the things is it teaches, we, we teach each other. You know, we start to fill in some of those gaps in our knowledge. We personalize, we learn about where we are. Um, and the acknowledgements, you know, include territorial land acknowledgements, but also acknowledgements to the history of chattel slavery in this country. Um, to try to start unpacking what whiteness is, because I, when I read your book, I was reading neutrality. I was also just thinking whiteness in the back of my mind the entire time is this thing that's kind of hard to find until the, as you describe it in the book, Barth spilling the neutral ink and you see it. And it's like, that's not new. That's a, that's a substance, a thing. And that maybe it's hard to see because we're in it, um, particularly as a white <laughs> cis hetero man. Um, but you know, when you start to talk about it, it does get into, really difficult places. And I really appreciated all of the quotes and references to, you know, even Martin Luther King saying, you know, we, we have to go for the positive piece, even if that means conflict and creating conflict that we have to try to resolve. Because if it's just the absence of tension, we're not gonna, we're not gonna move from the symbolic to actual policies, to those really hard changes um, within institutions and structures. So I, I really, I'm really glad you included that passage um, in the book about the land acknowledgements because I just, I, I do think that's a way you have to teach each other these skills, you know, and they're not going to be easy, you know. Yeah, the first few times you do it, you feel incredibly awkward and like you're being a total dope and, you know, and then you hear somebody else do it better and you're like, oh, I should think about it that way, you know, and, and like you say, we teach each other and I, I think, you know, this moment feels like very judgy, you know, and we don't have all the answers and, you know, none of us do. And so I think like my MO, I try to be as generous as I can to people who are like really trying to do the work. And I hope that that might be extended back to me to whatever degree people can, you know, um, because it's, if we're not trying, we're not, gonna make mistakes. And, um, and that's a might be a safer place to be, but it's actually not a place that we can be together better. And I think if that's the goal, then, you know, we need to be trying and make ourselves vulnerable, make ourselves push ourselves to a place where we might fuck up and have to deal with the repercussions of that, you know, and that's okay. Well, speaking of generosity, I want to thank you, Laura, yeah. for coming on the show and talking with us in such depth about this, uh, like all the subjects that your book um, brings up, all of the work that you're doing now. Um, I think like it gives us a lot of reason to be positive, even in a time that I think is very uh, scary for a lot of us and filled with um, anxiety. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and uh, I, I think our, our listeners will do the same. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. It's, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you both as always. And um, I really look forward to continuing the conversation in other zones um, of weirdness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.